This is an ABC podcast. Hi, it's Norman Swan here with this week's Health Report podcast. Today, a meaty topic with Tegan Taylor, your questions answered, brief interventions which help keep you safe if you or someone you know is having thoughts of self-harm or suicide, how tongue cancer is rising among young Australian women, the question is why, and a skin cancer that's very common, you've probably never heard of, but you actually need to. First to that topic with Tegan. You might have seen some celebrities endorsing meat-only diets, claiming it's cured them of chronic disease and, of course, helped them to stay lean. To people who are tuned in to health research, such as you, our Health Report listeners, those diets might seem utterly crazy. They certainly go against our, our dietary guidelines, but Tegan Taylor's been looking into them, haven't you, Tegan? I sure have, and we should get something out of the way first and foremost. Uh, like you said, lots of people eating meat and any animal products is just off the table, so to speak, for ethical or environmental reasons. But, I mean, let's ta- let's put a health lens on it tonight. Indeed. So this is called a meat diet or carnivorous diet. I mean, or and it's also a variation on the paleo diet, isn't it? Yeah, there's lots of different people who have their own brand of very animal product heavy diets. So I've seen some celebrities eating beef only, which sounds expensive as much as anything else. And others who are just like carnivorous, sort of a broad church of any kind of animal animal products, including some of them include things like cheese and butter as well. And do they include plants of any kind? I mean, does green enter the... I guess it depends here? on. Well, I don't. I don't know. And so a lot of these people um, hold up. You like you say it sort of a, comes on from the Atkins diet or Paleo diet, which is very very meat heavy. But there's plants sort of as part of the mix there. And a lot of the people who are proponents of these diets talk about the Inuits, the First First Nations people in North America, as examples of people who have done this as a traditional diet. And they do indeed eat quite a lot of meat in that diet, but they actually do also eat some plants, which I'm not sure if um, people are as aware of that. And a lot of fish, and the meat is you know fish oriented as well as um, land. You know, the land animals as yep. well. Exactly. So, yes, it's it's quite a, a broad diet. So what claims are made? Oh, it's the usual fad diet stuff. People cl- claiming that they've had chronic diseases disappear or that their depression and anxiety is disappearing. And so in some ways, it, it could be quite easy to just go, oh, you know, fad diet, another fad diet, like laugh it off. But experts are calling for more research into this because if there are people who are reporting good effects and they, they're following these diets for years and they're not dead yet, so there maybe is something in it for some people. So there's a there's an article in Current Opinion in Endocrinology, Diabetes and Obesity this month calling for more research into it because on paper at least you can get pretty much all the essential nutrients you need from animal foods, but we don't know anywhere near enough about the long-term effects of it. It's a bit of a myth that the paleo diet is so heavy on meat because it depends on where you were a hunter-gatherer. I mean, some, well, yeah. You know, and when I always quote this with paleo diets is that in the Stone Age, the life expectancy was about 28 That's eating the paleo diet. The whole paleo diet idea is a bit of a a fantasy anyway because it's based on this idea that, well, there's an evolutionary biologist, uh, Marlene Zook, who's very famously talked about paleo fantasy and that this concept that humans at one time lived in harmony with nature and now that we and now we don't humans have never lived in harmony with nature that's why we keep evolving and we're continuing to evolve and so while there's definitely downfalls to the western diet and the western lifestyle it's not like we had a golden age where we were perfectly in tune with nature and now we're not is there any evidence that we could be some people are more genetically in tune with a carnivorous diet 
There's not evidence, but there are hypotheses. So there, the one expert that I was speaking to was talking about this idea of personalised medicine and personalised diets and kind of doing away with this idea that there's only one one optimum diet that is right for everyone, which is what these fad diets often claim. It's sort of held up as sort of like this one ring to rule them all. And she was sort of saying like, humans aren't clones of each other. We have genetic variation and just the same way as some people might have um, a lactose intolerance or, or certain intolerances that perhaps there are other genetically based differences in the sorts of diets that we tolerate that might make some people perhaps thrive more on a diet like this than the traditional diet that we think about. Of course, a diet like that could make you a bit keto. I mean, it could, it's, it's essentially a ketogenic diet. And you do, after a few days, feel quite good on a ketogenic diet. It does uplift you. Um, so exactly. It, it could be the ketogenic effects rather than the meat itself. That's right. So there's things like the ketogenic effects that could come into play. There's when you, that's definitely something that's mentioned in the literature. There's also this idea that you'd think about deficiencies in certain minerals or certain vitamins, like vitamin C, for example, that you'd be like, well, you're not going to be able to get that or from fiber. meat. Well, fiber's a whole, a whole other thing. The microbiome is yeah, sort of relies on that. that. Yeah. Uh, just mm, on that. So, yes, I think most people who've taken a strong interest in the microbiome would be like, bad news, like, alert, alert, back away from the meat-only diet. But this same expert was sort of saying, in the same way that we have genetic differences between individuals, there's also differences in the, in the microbiome between individuals. And some people's microbiome might actually do better. Not, there's not one diet that's going to suit everyone's microbiome. But you do need a microbiome that produces but butyrate to um, prevent bowel cancer, and a meat-only diet is not going to give you a, micro a microbiome that produces butyrate. Mm. Um, and go back to the Inuit. I mean, the Inuit, uh, First Nations people who do not live necessarily in good circumstances, their diet does not, does not in their case, produce a long, healthy life. Right. So it, what the Inuit diet, the Inuit diet tells us a few things. One is that it is technically possible to thrive on a very animal heavy diet. And the way that they ate animals is not just eating steaks around the clock. Like you say, they ate a lot of fish and a lot of sort of sea creatures, some land animals, a lot of organ meat and... Um, and, and, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but unlike yeah. First Nation people everywhere, they got a lot of exercise, which Absolutely. counteracts the effects of the diet. That's right. And a lot of variation across the year as well. So it's not that this is just a, a blanket rule for the whole year. There would be times of year that would be lean and times of year that would be fat and there'd be plants at some times of year and not in others. But one of the things that comes into the shorter lifespan, and when we're talking about First Nations people and lifespan, there's obviously so many factors at play when you're studying them in a modern context. But they did a lot of smoking and salting of their meat, which does which has sort of contributed to that short, shortened lifespan there. So we're trying not to be holier than thou, but be careful if you want to go on one of these diets and get some advice and don't necessarily take it from the paleo writers. Tegan, we'll see you later. Thank you, Norman. Tegan Taylor, who is uh, really turning into a co-host, really, on The Health Report. This is RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Our email address for questions and comments is healthreport at abc.net.au. Australian researchers have published the findings from the world's first large, reliable study of a common skin tumour, which is poorly recognised but can be scary, and we need to know about it. It's called a keratoacanthoma. The lead author on the paper was dermatologist Dr Magdalena Clayson of the Queensland Institute of Medical Research in Brisbane, and I spoke to Magdalena earlier. 
This is a tumor that grows very quickly, 10 to 20 millimeters in size, and it grows to that size within weeks or months. It is red, it is lump-like, and it has a hard, scaly keratin core. And keratin is the protein that makes up our hair and skin. Does it just keep on growing or does it stop at a certain size? Well, most commonly the tumors are 10 to 20 millimeters in size. That's quite large. It is, and that can be frightening to patients, also because they grow so quickly. On any particular part of the body? Yes, they develop mostly on sun-exposed areas of uh, the skin, which would be hands and arms and legs and occasionally on the face. Do they become malignant? They do not commonly cause death to the patient. So they can be compared to, for instance, BCCs, which are the most common type of skin cancer. And they also do not cause death to the patient, like a melanoma, for instance. But they are still a problem to the patient because they need to be removed surgically. So this is the first time anywhere in the world that a proper incident study has been done? Yes. So you studied 40,000 people in Queensland. What did you find? We found that the risk factors are high sun exposure, fair skin, for instance, like an ability to tan or having many freckles, and also being of older age, 60 years or older, having male sex, and then smoking and alcohol. And how common is it then? Every year, around 5,000 adult Queenslanders develop keratoacanthomas. And it's likely that's more common than anywhere else in Australia, given that Queensland's got greater sun exposure apart from, say, northern parts of the Northern Territory and Western Australia. Yes, correct. Uh, skin cancers generally are very common in Queensland. And that's also why this study was set in Queensland, because the, the rates are so high there. Was there a relationship with other skin cancers, such as perhaps melanoma or basal cell carcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma? Well, we do know that... These skin tumors, they share a lot of risk factors, like, for instance, having a fair skin and having a lot of previous sun exposure. So, yes, they can develop on people that have had another type of skin cancer before. Did you look at how people were having it treated? Not in this study, no, but it is mostly recommended that keratoacanthomas are removed surgically because we cannot, just by looking at them clinically, distinguish them from more aggressive types of squamous cell carcinoma. So they have to be removed surgically and then examined under the microscope. And one of the most poorly diagnosed forms of melanoma is what's called nodular melanoma. And I know the Victorian data is that about 45% of people who die of melanoma actually have nodular, which just doesn't have the typical appearance of a melanoma in terms of irregular outline, the change in colour and what have you. This sounds as if it could be confused for nodular melanoma or nodular melanoma could be confused for keratoconthoma. Yes, that's absolutely right. And thank you for mentioning that because I would like to take this opportunity to ask people that if they have a growing lesion on the skin, please go see their doctor. Because it's not always easy to distinguish a nodular melanoma from a keratoconthoma, from a squamous cell carcinoma, and the diagnosis has to be made by a doctor. Why smoking and alcohol is a risk factor, do you think? We don't know that yet, but what we do know is that, for instance, smoking and tobacco smoke contains numerous carcinogens, and that is well known to cause other types of cancers. And also, 
tobacco smoking and alcohol has been associated with skin cancers before. It's not the most common risk factors known for skin cancer, but in large studies before, we have seen an association with other types of skin cancer as well. Is keratoecanthoma a cancer? That is a difficult question, and not even the most experienced pathologist can say this in a confident way. What we can say is that we treat them as if they are a squamous cell carcinoma. The WHO considers this to be a type of squamous cell carcinoma, so it should be removed surgically. And did you find a latitude effect that the further north in Queensland you go, the commoner it was? No, we did not investigate that, unfortunately. And then the other question I want to ask is, if, if you look at the instance of this versus the instance of SCCs and BCCs, is it more, is it less? I mean, is it much more common than we think? For every three people that develop an SCC, a squamous cell carcinoma, there's one person developing a keratoacanthoma. So this is, in fact, a very common tumour. So in summary then, this is a tumour that disturbs people, cannot be ignored because it could be something else that's far more serious, needs to be cut out. Do we know if slip, slop, slap prevents it? In other words, protecting yourself against the sun, or do we infer that from the risk factors? Well, this is an opportunity for people to decrease their risk of keratoacanthomas. And you're exactly right. We need to protect for the sun, use sunscreen, use protective clothing, seek shade, avoid sun when the UV index is high, and also drink within risk limits and stop smoking. Magdalena, thanks for joining us on The Health Report. Thank you so much. Dr Magdalena Clayson is a postdoctoral fellow at the Queensland Institute of Medical Research. Tongue cancer has been typically a disease of older men who are smokers and drinkers. But a new analysis of Australian data has found the cancer is on the rise in an unexpected group, younger women. So what are the signs of tongue cancer and what do we know about the cause of the increase? Health producer James Bullen has been investigating. I actually moved to Australia back in 2015, and before I did so, I had a routine dentist appointment back home in California. 34-year-old Rachel Carruthers works as a linguist for a tech company in Sydney. And during that dentist appointment, my dentist had noticed a small lesion on my tongue and said that it would be best if I get that checked out before I moved. Rachel went to a specialist who told her that the cells on her tongue were a little unusual, but that it wasn't cancerous. So she got on with her life. Four years later, after having completely forgotten about that, I did notice, again, a small lesion on the left side of my tongue that was quite irritating, as if I had bitten my tongue, although I hadn't, uh, and it wasn't going away on its own. So she visits her dentist in Sydney. He said that it hadn't changed in size whatsoever and that it probably wasn't anything to be worried about. He could send me to a specialist, but they would probably just say the same thing and that would have been a waste of my time. So kind of told me to think that it's probably nothing. So I said, all right, you know, that's fine. Fair enough. But a month later, and this little lesion, this ulcer, is still there and it's painful. So I went back and asked for a referral. I was finally able to get one. And about two days after I had my biopsy with the specialist here in Sydney, I was phoned and they let me know that it was, in fact, cancerous cells. Even the specialist had said, you know, yep, I don't like the look of this, but obviously with your health history and considering how young you are, you know, it's not going to be something like cancer or anything. It's just a bit odd. I was just in a bit of a state of shock and then fear. There's something about 
the concept of cancer kind of in your face, not the cancer is, you know, a benevolent thing anywhere, but it just felt so invasive and it was really hard to wrap my head around, I think. Typically, it's been older men who are chronic drinkers and smokers that develop tongue cancer. But that's changing. Now, young people, and especially young women, are an increasing proportion of the people being diagnosed. The rate of tongue cancers in young women has risen about 4.5% every year for the past few decades. A study from our group in conjunction with our local and international colleagues has shown that there's been a significant increase in tongue cancers developing in young, non-smoking women. Carsten Palm is the director of head and neck surgery at Chris O'Brien Lifehouse in Sydney. And when you look at that increase, it equates to about a 5% increase per annum which is quite significant. You know, this, this is a really worrying trend because as much as awareness campaigns sort of focus on the classic risk groups, you know, a lot of these people fall under the cracks just because people just don't think of this disease. Carsten says there are symptoms to look out for, but these cancers can be difficult to pick up. Any significant ulcer that presents concern to the patient in terms of pain or any bleeding and, and that doesn't go away after, you know, a short period really needs to be uh, seen by somebody who can definitely rule in or rule out a more significant process. The other important thing is your dental checkup. I think dentists are very much at the forefront of inspecting the oral cavity all the time. And although they tend to focus mainly on the teeth, you know, we are trying to make them focus on the soft tissues around the teeth to make sure that they're aware of any signs that might require further investigations and management. Once a tongue cancer is diagnosed, there are different treatments depending on how far it's progressed. For earlier stages, the tumour may be removed with surgery alone. For late-stage cancers, you might also need radiotherapy or chemotherapy. Rachel's cancer was caught at an earlier stage, so in May last year, she underwent surgery to remove the tumour on the left side of her tongue. They removed about a quarter to a third of my tongue at that point. Kind of just carved it out, if you will because of how much of the tongue they did need to remove, they would kind of replace or build in that tissue by taking tissue from my upper thigh uh, and groin area. In the first 48 hours after they had kind of rebuilt my tongue, they needed to check every hour on the hour on the tissue itself that they had introduced to the tongue to make sure that the tissue was alive and that it wouldn't die, so to speak. So I was woken up every hour for two days, which means I didn't really sleep and they were kind of poking and prodding. I couldn't drink any water or eat anything, obviously, for the first 10 days. I had a feeding tube and that was all fine and well, but not being able to drink any water or sip on anything, I, it's hard to describe it. It was quite a mental challenge. More than a year on, things are mostly back to normal for Rachel. She's made a good recovery. But there's still the question of how she got tongue cancer in the first place. I don't think that there was anything specific that I'm aware of that would have contributed to this. There's some history of cancer within my family, not of tongue cancer specifically, but it does remain a mystery to me. Why young non-smoking women are getting disease at this stage remains unknown. And one of the real challenges is that head and neck cancer is a bit of an orphan disease, that the numbers are low and it's historically have affected people who, who come from more challenging parts of society. So 
to be quite honest, it really hasn't attracted a lot of funding and interest in looking at the causative factors. Other mouth cancers can be caused by human papillomavirus, HPV, but scientists have determined that's not what's happening here. Carsten's team thinks part of the answer could be genetics. Our group have actually been looking at the the genomic profile of young women with tongue cancer and have identified some concerning areas which may be the cause of cancer in these young women. A factor called P53, which is what's called a tumour suppressor gene. So these are genes that put a break on the cellular cycle and, and kind of get rid of cells, has been shown to be not working properly and therefore these cells with an abnormal p53 just continue to grow mutations in this gene were associated with tongue cancer in the genomic profile of these young women what's still not clear is how that mutation is being triggered in other patients smoking and various carcinogens make those changes happen but exactly what's happening in young women clearly requires further study. That story from the Health Report's James Bullen. One of the concerns during this pandemic is its effects on mental health, and in particular the risk that people are so distressed or hopeless, particularly about the economic situation or educational prospects, that they feel the only way out is to take their own life. But there are opportunities to prevent that happening, and it needn't involve a long course of therapy. A recent study has reviewed the evidence for what are called brief interventions for suicide prevention. Dr. Stephanie Dubnik of the University of Pennsylvania was the lead author, and we spoke this morning. I'm happy to be here. Can you just describe, at least in the United States context, I suspect it's not too different here, the typical pathway of somebody who ends up taking their own life? Many folks who do end up dying by suicide have had multiple opportunities where they've had contact with the healthcare system to identify that concern and, you know, hopefully to intervene. So sometimes folks have been in the emergency department, sometimes folks have had a hospitalization, sometimes they've been to visit their primary care doctor. And so my research is to identify folks when they're having those opportunities of contact with the healthcare system and to try and intervene before a tragic event like a suicide death. And what are the signals? I mean, obviously self-harm is one. Depression is not always a reliable indicator of whether somebody's at risk. What should health professionals be looking out for before we get to these interventions? One really strong recommendation is that anybody who's presenting with any type of mental health concern, whether it's depression, whether it's something else, should be screened for risk of suicide because we know that depression alone isn't a reliable indicator of whether somebody is at risk of suicide and the same for any other mental health concern. And one area that we're working on in healthcare in general is to try to understand also how to screen for folks who maybe aren't presenting with a mental health concern, but maybe a physical concern like aches or pains or that sort of thing. But really the key thing to know is that without asking about suicide risk directly, like doing a suicide risk screening, it's hard to know who's at risk of suicide. And so screening is really very important. But what does screening consist of? Screening would be asking questions to help assess whether somebody's having thoughts of suicide, whether they've made any plans toward making a suicide attempt, whether they've done any actions or behaviors that could be placing them at risk of dying, really just asking them about where their mind is and and things that they may have done that are putting them at risk of suicide. So then the question is, if you've identified somebody at risk, what do you do about it? And the approach you've taken is, well, this might be the only time you ever see this person. They might disappear into the ether. 
So it's got to be right now that I do it because I might not get another chance. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I work in a children's hospital setting, so I see kids that have come to the emergency department and sometimes maybe they've been admitted to the hospital. And you're absolutely right. Once I discharge them from my care, I might never see them again. And so I've been very interested in what we can do in those one contact healthcare encounters to help make sure that somebody is safe if we're sending them back to the community. And what you did was you reviewed the evidence on a lot of brief interventions. What do you do on that one session? What sort of interventions did you look at? Included interventions that had a brief follow-up component. So one of those types of interventions is considered a caring contact or a brief contact intervention where, let's say I'm a doctor in the emergency department and I've seen somebody who's at risk of suicide and we send them home. One of the things that we might do is have the emergency department follow up via phone call, text message, even a postcard can be effective for helping reduce risk of a future suicide attempt. There were a few other categories of interventions that we identified. So the first one that I just mentioned is the brief contact interventions. We also identified sort of brief therapy sessions that can be done in the ER where you might have a brief session with a counselor or a psychotherapist. We identified care coordination interventions where somebody is really focused on making sure that you have access to mental health care after you leave the emergency department or whatever setting you might be in. And then the last category we called safety planning interventions. So that's a a group of interventions where the person seeing somebody at risk of suicide kind of plans with them for how to make sure that they're going to be safe after leaving the emergency department or wherever else they may be. So reducing access to lethal means like guns, knives, other things that might be dangerous, and then making a coping plan. So let's say they're having suicidal thoughts. Who do they call? Where do they go? How do they make sure that they can stay safe in that moment? And what did you find when you added up all the evidence? We found that on the whole, suicide prevention interventions delivered in those brief encounters are effective at reducing risk of subsequent suicide attempts and at increasing folks' access to ongoing mental health care. So they were more likely to have a mental health follow-up visit after that brief encounter. Did it matter which intervention they got? You know, we didn't analyze the data in that way. We really only looked at the interventions in aggregate. And of course, in a real world, somebody sitting in the emergency department might choose the right one for that individual rather than one size fits all. You know, I think that's right. And I think it's also sort of at the system level about making sure that every emergency department where a patient might go if they're at risk of suicide is equipped to deliver one of these kinds of interventions. So, you know, a small emergency department in a rural area might be best served by one type of intervention, whereas a really large academic center in an urban area where the resources are different might be best served by a different intervention. So I think it it is a little bit about, you know, the setting where the patient is and then about the unique characteristics of what the patient themselves might need. So they reduced suicide attempts. Did they reduce deaths by suicide? Most of the studies did not look at whether suicide deaths were reduced. Suicide death is quite rare. And so it's hard to show that there's a change. But we consider a reduction in suicide attempts a fairly good proxy. So if a parent of a young person's listening and they're worried about their child, for example, and or somebody's listening themselves and has had these thoughts, is there a message in here for them? Absolutely. If you yourself or if, you know, a loved one is having thoughts of suicide, the number one thing that I can say is that 
it's so important and so helpful to reach out. That's really the number one message. Connection is so important and there are folks out there who care and who can help change the course and get you on a path toward feeling better. Stephanie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Stephanie Dupnik is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the University of Pennsylvania. And if you or somebody you know is thinking about suicide, please call Lifeline on 131114. Headspace also has resources, as does Beyond Blue. And just remember, only good really can come from asking somebody if you're worried about them or if they're okay. And if they say they're not, you will not induce them to take their own life by asking them if they thought about harming themselves. It just locks in the need to provide support. You're not becoming their therapist, you're just helping them to provide support. Important to know, don't you think, Tegan? Absolutely. So let's get to our regular um, session with questions. And uh, why don't you hit me with what people are asking on healthreport at abc.net.au. Yep, I've just traipsed down the health report garden path to the health report letterbox. Mm -hmm. And here's a question here from Ian, who's just latched onto our story on the benefits of strength training, which we played a few months ago. The problem is not the strength training itself. It's getting around to doing it. Any tips? If I knew how to motivate people, I I would actually do that. The, 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 here's it depends. We don't know how old Ian is, but here's the thing: as you get older, you develop this condition called sarcopenia, which is where your muscles waste away. And just remember, your muscles are really just about the most metabolically active part of your body that you can do something about. Your brain's pretty is really highly metabolically active, but your muscles are really important for your metabolism, particularly insulin and controlling diabetes and, and so on. So if you get sarcopenia, you're on a track to frailty and not being able to look after yourself. So the motivation is, as early as possible, is get those muscles strong and keep them strong. And that is a really important part of exercise. And so every part of your 40, 50, 60 minutes of exercise, most days of the week, a very important part should be strength training of some kind. Absolutely. I actually did a story a couple of months ago about overcoming the barriers to exercise. And lots of people say they don't have time for it, but it's a mental game as much as an actual time game, I think, especially with strength training, which doesn't have to take a really long time. Actually, following on from that, Hugh's got a question about flexibility. So we've heard a lot on the health report about the relationship between exercise and health, ageing and mortality. But Hugh's pointed out that there's not a lot of commentary on body flexibility, and he's wondering whether it's also linked to longevity or quality of life? It's probably what's called a proxy. In other words, if you're flexible, you're more likely to be able to do a lot of exercise. I mean, there, there is a measure, interestingly, it's not flexibility, but um, which is grip strength. Um, you can test people's grip strength, and that's a proxy for how fit you are and how able you are to look after yourself. Another one is your ability to stand up from a sitting position without any assistance, Those your walking speed and so on. Flexibility is just a proxy, I suspect, for general fitness rather than being in its own right. But of course, it depends on how you get your flexibility. If you get it from something like Pilates, which also involves a lot of strength training, then that's a really good thing. Or yoga, again, that creates stronger muscles as well as giving you some flexibility. So there's lots of stuff that you can do to make your muscles stronger, which also increase your flexibility. It's a sign of fitness, not necessarily a replacement for exercise itself. Some people think it is, 
And when you look around the gym, there are some people who spend their whole gym session just stretching and looking good in front of the mirror rather than actually getting in and getting sweated like Ian is trying to avoid as well, I suspect. (laughs) And a question from Anthea about migraines. She's saying every time she gets a migraine after 40 years of having them, she gets a cold at the same time. Could it be a coincidence or is there something else at play? It's a recognised but not common experience that this is probably a phenomenon of Anthea's migraine. And what seems to happen, this is the theory, is there's a nerve that comes out of your brain called the trigeminal nerve. And if that's affected by your migraine, you can get a runny nose and the symptoms of a respiratory tract infection. And it often confuses doctors. And it's certainly confusing in the time of COVID is that you know, if you get a runny nose and a cough, or, well, it won't be a cough in the case of migraine, but you get the symptoms of a respiratory tract infection and you think it's migraine, it could be COVID, you should be tested. But it, it can be a phenomenon of migraine itself. And I think from Anthea's story, that might be the case. She's worried she needs to see a migraine specialist to get it sorted out. So there's probably not a virus at play there? No, but she can have a swab and test for it and ask for viral, you know, more general viral tests than COVID when she gets it to make sure that it's not a virus. But my guess is, my bet would be that there's no virus going to be found and it is a phenomenon of the migraine. Don's asking about the shingles shot. He's a 68-year-old male wondering whether to get a shingles shot to prevent getting the disease. The GP says he can get a free shot when he's 70, but he's not 70 yet. So he got estimates on how expensive the most common vaccine is. There's a couple of different vaccines on the market. What should he do? I think you should look up the Department of Health and Canberra's recommendations for immunisation. James Bullen, the health reports producer, has kindly done that for us. I mean, it's a very good idea to get the shingles vaccine. It's not a pleasant disease. It can affect your face and your eye. It can give you pain that lasts for a long time. Really good idea to avoid that if you can. You're eligible for it. Uh, In other words, the evidence for its benefits kicks in around about the age of 60. And it is free for people aged between 70 and 79. And if you're an adult aged 50 and you're in a household with someone who has a weakened immune system, you're also eligible for the shingles vaccine. Which shingles vaccine? Uh, That's something you really need to talk over with your GP. And it's really your individual circumstance. If you can't afford it, then wait till you're 70. If you can afford it, then I would get it sooner. I've got a follow-up question about the shingles vaccine, Norman. So people get shingles... No, say say shingles shot again, because I think shingles shot is harder to say. (laughs) Shingles shot, shingles shot, say it three times fast. So you get shingles if you've had chickenpox as a child, right? Mm. So if the virus is already in your body, why do you need a vaccine? Because the, the, the immune system is not strong enough to wallop the herpes zoster that's the virus that causes both shingles and chickenpox to wallop it when it comes out of the nerve cells. So you, you actually need to give the immune system a boost so when the herpes zoster sticks its head up, it gets walloped and goes either back in or gets destroyed. Our bodies are amazing. <laughs> mm. Michael's asking about intermittent fasting on time-restricted feeding for weight loss and metabolic health. So there's been randomised controlled trial that's recently been published indicating no significant benefits and possible harm. How does this fit into the rest of the body of research around it? I've had a good look at this and any weight-reducing diet risks losing muscle. And you've got to keep your protein up and you've got to keep your exercise up to make sure that you're not losing muscle. So that's really important in any diet because if you're not burning carbohydrate, you're wanting to switch your body to 
burning fat because it's the fat you're trying to get rid of. But the body will also look to protein because you can change muscle into energy as well. And you've got to protect against that. So any diet can do that. The main issues around the intermittent fasting or the time-restricted feeding. Time-restricted feeding, by the way, is usually where it's like a 16-8, where you might not eat after 8 o'clock at night and not eat until lunchtime the next day or after lunch the next day. So it's essentially missing breakfast and late-night eating. And they will both help you to lose weight. They're both okay for your metabolism, but the randomized trials suggest that probably not much better than a portion-controlled, calorie-controlled diet. And it's really what suits you best. Fasting itself, intermittent fasting, you know, if you, if you want rapid weight loss, then you can go to one of those more extreme 800-calorie-a-day diets, not to be recommended unless you really need it because of obesity, preparing for an operation or something like that. And you need to be very careful about what you're eating because you can go into dietary deficiencies. So an 800 calorie a day diet is not something you just do yourself. You need some advice to actually do it. And only if you're really overweight, would you consider it? And then even that would, would risk muscle wasting as well. So there's no perfect diet, but any diet will help you to lose weight. And there's none proven really to sustain weight loss. That's the key. That's where you'll get a Nobel Prize. That's the real kicker, yeah. Weight maintenance. So there is, by the way, there is, it is known, while I'm on about this, being a, a, you know, a congenitally overweight person trying to get thinner. You're very fit, Norman. I yeah, don't say that. Um, is, so there are things that are known about people who maintain their weight and maintain weight loss you get a lot of exercise. So you get about an hour of exercise a day, seven days a week. And it's a mixture of aerobic training, aerobic exercise, where you're getting a bit breathless. So moderate exercise. If you can have a gossip with somebody by your side and you think that's moderate exercise, it's not. You're not working hard you're enough. You're not working hard enough. It's got to be reasonably hard to have, a, to have a conversation. So it's moderate exercise for about an hour a day, seven days a week. You keep a food diary when you're trying to lose weight. So if you're losing control of it, you actually document honestly. And there are plenty of apps now, or really good apps, where you can, as long as you're honest, no app will counteract dishonesty. But you've got apps there which will help you calculate your diet and, and look at what you're eating on a day-by-day basis and even a minute-by-minute basis. And they will help document that. And and weighing yourself regularly. So a lot of people say, oh, don't weigh yourself regularly. Weigh yourself every morning at the same time after your shower with no clothes on and see what your weight is. And that also gives you some feedback. And a portion control diet. In other words, you don't ever relax about your portion control. And fifthly, there's five things here, you don't change your diet at the weekend. Mm, consistency. Because uh, we all do that. One more question from Dilma. Uh, her GP says a dark-skinned person does not have vitamin D conversion from the sun in the same way it does in a light-skinned person. She wants to know, is that true? And she takes vitamin D capsules. Is that the right thing to be doing? It's certainly true that if you've got dark skin, you don't convert vitamin D as efficiently from sunlight. And the real issue is particularly women of childbearing age particularly if you've, they've come from an environment, say Sudan, Ethiopia, where they've lived in an environment where you've got enclosed houses with a central courtyard where they expose their skin to the sun, but they end up in Australia in a tiny apartment and because of their religious beliefs cover up 
their skin almost entirely, they can become seriously vitamin deficient and their kids can, their babies can get rickets, which is something we haven't seen since Victorian times. So dark-skinned women of childbearing age almost certainly should be on vitamin D and it's something you should talk to your doctor about. And you're not going to do yourself any harm by taking vitamin D supplements as you move through life because particularly if you're living in or further away from the equator in Australia towards you know, Victoria or Tasmania, you're not going to get as much sun as elsewhere and in a natural sense, and vitamin D probably is a good idea. Well, that's everything from the letterbox today, Norman, but people, we'd love your questions and comments, so send them to healthreport at abc.net.au. And next week we'll get Tegan to answer some of them. Yeah, maybe I will. And this has been the Health Report. We'll see you next time. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.